Okay, so b- before we start today, I've um, got a request actually. For so y- y- you, you may or may not have realized, but we're not alone at Gaia House in terms of there are other retreatants here. Uh, there's people on personal retreat and people on work retreat. And uh, there's been a, a request to please uh, not not talk outside of the uh, Q&A period and interviews. And I don't know wh- what exactly is happening or in your work periods or something. Or um, So for for their sake, who you know, naturally expected to come on a silent retreat. Um, but also for your sake, this, this idea of actually letting things, letting things build, letting the energies build. If it's, you know, when there's happiness and of course appreciation, you, very natural human, you want to share that or talk. Um, but, and that's important, of course, is an important part of being human. But in this practice, we're also wanting wanting to let the energies build and not squander them so much. Um, there will be a chance to talk at the end, share time together verbally at the end of the retreat. But um, unless it's talking about with each other about the work and what needs doing right then about whatever yogi job you're doing, um, just to repeat the initial agreement uh, to to sustain silence together and and can you feel together in that silence so do i need to speak and be heard and exchange that to feel connected one of the opportunities is i think i already somehow came up in the q and a in a longer as as a retreat gets longer w- we get more sensitive and part of that the gift of that sensitivity is that we can feel each other more deeply, more widely, more completely, more openly and sensitively. And we don't need to talk uh, necessarily. We don't even need to talk to someone or hear their story or hear whatever to sense how they're doing and their personhood and the particular flavors of their being and to sense that connection and and the way it can uh, one can feel very connected ac- across space without all that. So I don't I don't know the details, but the other resident teacher has obviously heard from some yogis or encountered something. So there's a re- request to all of us to to kind of uphold uphold re revisit that commitment together and keep that. And if it feels like oh, but it's such a nice connection, then I invite you to see. It to remind yourself that you can have that verbal connection at the end of the retreat with each other and to see how connected can you feel without words. And it, it, it's to do with the same qualities, really, that we're bringing, if you want to feel connected, that we're bringing to this kind of practice anyway. And to me, that are part of what we bring to any practice. Sensitivity, openness, receptivity, attunement, etc., etc. It's, it's all the same thing. And if you, if n- if a certain period is is a time when you don't want to do that, is it not recording? Um, if a certain period is when you don't want to do that, then then you know you just shift the balance of the attention. So if you are feeling like yeah you're really enjoying and appreciating each other and the connection, let that be more prominent. I'm washing dishes and whatever, and there can be the eye contact and smiling if you want, without the expectation that it comes back. But the 
the emphasis on the attention is more on that sense of connection and appreciating it and feeling it with the whole body and resonating it. And you can get exquisitely sensitive. And some of you know this on long retreat. You might be sitting right here at the front and I don't know how many yards it is to the back of the hall. Someone comes in quietly and you know who it is. And how does that happen? If I'm just yap, yap, yapping all the time, I won't develop that kind of sensitivity. Um, so you can play with the balance of attention uh, in, in terms of if I want that connection, then I can be a little more um, open. If I want, I'm more inner, maybe I'm working with my primary nimitta, maybe I'm processing something inside, maybe I'm just, well, I just need to collect my mind and be mindful, wh whatever it is, then, then the balance is more inside. Again, it's just context. So it's, it's never the case that we want never to talk to anyone, or, although the Buddha seemed to recommend that almost as a, a preference um, for his monks and nuns. But um, we want to have this freedom and this capacity to, to do things differently at different times. Uh, really, really important part of expanding our range and expanding our, our freedom. Yeah. So we can just revisit that together. Okay? Good. Okay, so I've got just a few questions from people, um, and we can take some, some verbal ones, some live ones. Um, I have a question. Is this from you? <laughs> okay, is there anything anyone would like to ask? <laughs> Oh, well, ha I just saw Nicole first, so why don't you, and then... And then <laughs> um, so last night before sleeping, I had a Vitaka and Vichara attack, which is a great time to have right before you go to sleep. <laughs> um, but really appreciating the whole jhana system um, kind of a bunch of things you said all came into order and just really feeling like this thing is it's really brilliant. And um, particularly I've been struck by when you said the most important thing about the jhanas is working towards a goal and, and, um, and who actually believes me. And I raised my hand. And then as soon as I raised my hand, I was like, if Rob asked me why, I would have no idea. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was just this instinctual hand raising. So... I, as, as it all came together last night, I was, uh, you know, it was long and extended, but the, but the short of it is basically the Buddha setting up work towards a goal, but the goal necessitates that you let go of clinging and aversion and even delusion and get more and more and more subtle. So all the ways that you would naturally go towards a goal, you're asked to being let, you're asked to let go of in order to complete that goal. And and then along the way, you make the world over and over and over again through dependent origination. And you see that either through um, hindrances where you create a hell realm or through beauty. And I was like, mind blown. Um, but the thing that I'm grappling with, after you gave that talk about desire, it struck me, it struck me so deep. I actually went to my room and I just wept for an hour. And I... Um, haven't ever had that kind of response on retreat. And I was 
like disturbed, not in a necessarily a bad way, but in this like a deep in my belly kind of way and went through a whole process. And in one, from one way of looking, I could see it as a sort of self-doubt hindrance attack. But at this other way of looking, it's like I felt how, um, important intention and desire is. I mean, I've been listening to you say it for years, like desire is a maker of worlds. And I'm like, yeah, but then I got it. And I was like, oh, (laughs) and that's really where I'm struggling with. Um, like I can see if I looked at it one way, it's like amazing. Like what can I do? But I'm actually just having this response of the gravity of like, can I live up to my desire and, and stick with that intention? Being on this retreat, it's been so beautiful to have the intention so strongly held. And then I leave, and it's a world where, uh, you know, literally, you know, on one level, you know, your attention and your desires being grabbed at, you know, everywhere. And and so it's just, yeah, I'm just really wondering if there's... Um, words around the gravity of intention and grappling with like that yeah. thank you nicole so do, do you do you mean i just want to try and under, make sure i understand so you you mean in your life the question is really about now that i've seen how important it is to kind of honor my desire in the deepest sense of the word honor and ought to deeply honor my deepest desires how and that's, I see how difficult that is to do in the world with different things pulling. What would support that? Is that what yeah, you're asking? Yeah, I think there's just a lot of self-doubt coming, like uh, just deep-rooted, like can I, my desire is strong and deep. And I don't, it's fast. And it's like, yes, I desire the jhanas, but way more than the jhanas. And um, it's yeah. from mystery and beauty and and these things that do I even know the definition or the depth of which they go? No, I don't. And yeah. And yet, seeing how intention is going to make my life, I'm just feeling like, uh, can I, like I want it, and can I do that? And there's just pain around, around that. Uh, so the pain is around not knowing whether you can, and the self-doubt with it. Yeah, yeah feeling the desire and um, not knowing about. Yeah. So I don't know you that well, but the, to the degree that I know you, it seems like you have done that pretty well in your life so far. But I don't know if you would agree with that. Like I said, I don't know you that well yet. So, yeah, I, I can. St- I, I guess I can see both. I've, there's times that I've done it very well, and times that I've failed. And I think the times when it fails is very painful, and not so much the not getting the thing, yeah. but seeing how I've let intentions fray. Yeah. Okay. So you know, with something, uh, I mean, there's so much to say about this, but but. I think what you just said is is maybe the key thing. Rather than get into, um, I I failed or I didn't fail. It's like what just happened there, and and what just happened there might be over the last ten years with a certain desire, or it might be in one in one interaction. I had a certain desire in a certain situation, and whoa, I just got completely sidetracked, or or blocked, or afraid, or inhibited, or lost my lost my uh risk taking capability you know what so so t- to me I, I wonder from what you're saying whether the most important thing is is 
learning from one of the most important things is learning from when you feel like you haven't lived up up to that. Is that is that um, just wondering if that's distracting people or not? It seems okay. It's it's really okay with me as long as it's not. I just um, okay. So um, sorry, sorry. It's it's really okay. It was just it's just a couple. So. Um, yeah, I find it helpful too, but it was just people were looking a lot, so, um, okay. Um, no, pl- please, please do stay, I didn't mean to, uh, okay. Um, <coughs> oh dear. Did he really wa- want to be in here? I mean, maybe he wanted to leave. Um, so, yeah, maybe one of the most important things is actually learning from uh, uh, from what you think is I- I- when something feels like you haven't lived up to that. You know. Um, what what exactly just happened? Was it fear? Was it, f- and then fear of what? You know, what kind of thoughts? What was I believing? Um, inhibition? Was it? Um, y- you know, desire has a lot to do with risk taking as well. Um, how, you know, how willing am I t- to to feel a fear and just to take a risk? You know, and and. Uh, and that could be a long-term vision risk, or it could be something in in the moment, depending on the whole setup of the situation. You know, um, you know. So, in a, on a big scale, I can think of several junctures in my life where I've really things were. I mean, I shared one about going going to do music. You know, things were really looking very promising from a certain social perspective in 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 a certain realm, and just went to do something where I was like, "What are you doing?" You know. Um, that's a kind of long-term risk thing, or, or other. So, or it could be very much in the moment that one's not, um, y- y- you know, one's afraid of taking certain risks. So, but but to identify what just happened, if you really feel like, oh, I got lost there. Something happened, and I didn't live up to my intentions. Um, And the other, you know, just to pull out, so that's one thing. Another thing to pull out from what you said is, is this business. I don't quite know even what I'm desiring. You know, to me that's okay. And and you're familiar with the soul making teachings. That would actually go with the eros. Eros will uh, create and discover beyonds that are actually some of which are completely nebulous. You know, in in terms, of I just have a sense of gorgeous, luminous divinities that I don't quite. I couldn't articulate them. I can't even differentiate them in my in my sense of them, and that's pulling me. And that's completely okay, you know. And, but on the way to that, I do want to be. It wants to translate into actual practical action. In other words, f- a full spectrum of desire, full spectrum of eros, has both very clear choices that it's asking me to make here and now, perhaps, or later, and kind of more more nebulous ones later on. D- does that make sense? And and that whole thing is is part of the fullness of it. Um, there's also such a thing as it's, you know, it's w- to me worth desiring and worth longing for and worth risking um, 
something that may well not pay off, that you may well not ever get. So one, one check, you know, it's like, check, that's part of the whole mix as well. Is it okay not to get this thing and yet still to give myself completely to it, you know? Um, again, if we think imaginally, you know, then if there's desire and eros for something, there will be in that whole constellation an image or images associated with that very desire. The angel who wants that, uh, the self that's desiring, something that out of the very fire, out of the very fire of the desire and the eros, there should constellate other images which can, which want you to move towards that or, or something that beckons you from from what it is that you love and long for. Does that make sense? And they can take very, uh, you know, potent imaginal forms. And so let them let them do that as well. Um, and then it relates to someone else's question as well. You know, if you really want certain things in life, you're going to piss some people off and disappoint some people and people will consider you, you selfish or this or that or people will consider you maybe, depending on what you want, some people will consider you, well, why is she less available? Why is she this or that for, for me, for them, whatever. And that's also part of what you have to deal with. You know, you can't satisfy everyone. Um, and so depending on your kind of, um, I don't know what to call it, relational empathic sensitivity, which you may have to quite a degree, you're actually going to feel the pain of that quite a lot. And you, you very easy for you to feel guilty and feel like you have to take care of this person or that person or why you're not available or why you're choosing to do this rather than that. So that's a way often that um, deep, deep, strong desires get sidetracked, that we feel um, beholden in a way to explain ourselves or to give people or this or that, something else, what, what they want. So it's hard. It's, it's hard to be in the world and, and it's even harder when people don't really understand what it is you're desiring or they don't value it or they can't, they think it's a kind of, you know, uh, not that worthwhile or, or whatever, you know, or they don't think you'll be able to get it. L lots of things, you know. So you, that's quite hard. You know, someone who's more kind of, I don't know what the word is, um, not emotionally less sensitive, emotionally less pulled on in, in relationship, you know, by, by others' needs and, and, and wishes and pain, uh, actually has an easier time with that. You know, so, but I don't know, is any of this addressing yeah. what you're... Yeah, it is. Uh, it we is. could probably talk all day and night about it because it's a huge subject, but... D is there any more you want to say? Or no, I think I think that's it. Okay, um, th one, then one more thing. You know, um, so it sounds like what what happened w was potent. You know, there was, this very and and in that potency again, there's lots of different things going on. So one of the things that was going on was this self doubt. You know, but I would wager there were lots of other things going on, and some of them. Uh, were probably very beautiful and probably very empowering. And, um, you know, this ability, again, same deal. It's like, okay, all this is going on. I, you could actually visit every, every frequency and emotion that, that had been going on in there, but some of them 
when you get to them will be very uh, potentially empowering, like I said. So here's a self-doubt. Obviously, that's potentially disempowering. It needs attention, partly for that very reason. I need to understand it. But there might be within it, just for example, here's this thing I really, really want, and I feel that wanting. And in that wanting, another way of saying it is, here's this thing I'm devoted to. Yeah? And that devotion, I c or this devotion and this longing, I can feel energetically. I can feel emotionally and energetically. And that's something that I can really sit with. And so even if what I want is actually vague, I'm not yet clear, but the, the fire of it is clear and the energy of it is clear and the devotion in it is clear. So rather than worrying too much about getting the clarity right now about what the object is, I can come back and um, be with my sense of devotion which I might even get at first, it feels like it's just a, it's somewhere in the mass of burning and confused, you know, somewhere in there is my, my devotion. And when I sit with my devotion, it naturally samadifies the being around it. it. It harmonizes and energizes and I can feel that uprightness. And the longer uh, I, I sit with that, with that uprightness and that sense of devotion and I let it, I let it shape my energy body and that's a kind of prayer, even though I'm not clear exactly what I'm praying to. Mm. It does something to the body and the psyche, uh, you know, regularly sitting in that and uh, feeling, feeling one's alignment. So you can do that for a long time, you can do that for a short time, um, but it will, imp it will do something. Yeah, that, that's a bit what happened. It was useful to th look for the hindrance in it and then sort of tend to that, which yeah. I did by devoting this retreat to a teacher that I mentor who suffers from self-doubt a lot. And mm -hmm. so I sort of bring her into the sit, especially when that comes up and kind of for that part of it, use, um, use that. And then a kind of fire of devotion. I was aware that once that was taken care of, there was actually, it was vague, but a sense of what I was longing for yeah. at, at least just in kind of the energy body and that really actually kicked the practice into another gear the next day after that Good. And, but it's it kind of came back last night as the sort of system of jhanas and what what we're doing and maybe why you said that thing about why is working you know why working towards a goal is so important so it's 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 yeah it wobbles <laughs> what's wobbling um, going between kind of feeling overwhelmed by um, the power of that desire and can I meet it and f f just feeling the power of the desire. Yeah. It kind of walks yeah. back. Yeah. And, um, y you know, again, if we, if we just talk about imaginal practice, the, ver the very doubt and wobble and fear and whatever it is, if I let myself go into that, out of that will come an image. The one who, potentially, the one who, in relation to what they love m most deeply and long for, feels very unsure of themselves. That the dukkha of that can take, can, can, you have to go into it though. You know, you're, you're not trying to pacify it or talk your way or reassure it. You're actually letting that constellate as an image. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it might get clear what I'm desiring, but it also gets clear just the desire itself, and I begin to trust that more and more, let that empower the whole being, yeah? Okay, great, yeah, we could talk a lot more, but that's, that's good, yeah. Um, some, some other people had their hands up earlier. Victor, yeah, please. 
Um, I wanted to um, tease out the term equanimity. I think, I mean, you've mentioned it a few times and uh, I think you said the ordinary use in English of equanimity doesn't quite cover what happens in jhana states. I was struck by how, um, from what I gather, uh, Bhikkhu Analio uses the term equipoise as the translation of Upeka. And I think because he says equanimity as a term can have a dampening effect. Um, Thoughts? Yeah, um, thank you. I'm going to talk more about equanimity tomorrow, but we can say a few things now. So equanimity as a term in English, I'm not sure if I even heard it before a Buddhist sort of speak, um, but the, the, sh- the what's called the near enemy in dar- in Dharma is of equanimity is indifference. So that may be what Analia is uh, pointing to. Uh, the you know, something that can look like equanimity, but actually it's a little bit... uh Actually, uh, I think he said it in the context that that, uh, pleasure could could be seen in the context of, well, there's pleasure here, but but dukkha somewhere else. So it takes the brightness off um, the term equanimity compared to equipoise, which is sort of like a balanced stance. Yeah, okay. I'm uh, I'm really happy with the word equipoise. I don't I think um uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about the word equanimity. Equi- equi- anima is, you know, equal soul, equal animation is probably what what it comes from. So equal what passion? Uh so that does that take the brightness off or does it not take the brightness off? Um if y- you know, equanimity is actually we can talk about it very briefly, or we can talk really, really a lot about it. And um, and and it's actually, you know, once we start in- inquiring, it's actually quite complex. So um, I was trying to remember. I, I think Upeka. I think it, I, there's somewhere or other where I trace the word. It, um, now I can't remember. I think it, in Sanskrit, Upeksha and, and the Iksha, Upa Iksha, and I think that's to do e- equal seeing. So seeing things equally. So you, you could say it's equally poised in the sense of it's ba- there's a balance between this and that, and even between pain and pleasure. And so at one level, yeah, that would be a good translation. Here I perceive pleasure, here I perceive dukkha, or whatever. And the being is equipoised. It's not leaning towards the pleasure or away from the, the dukkha at, w- at, one, um, at one level. Yeah, that would be a good word. It's all balance of mind. Uh, something like that, um, and that's good at a certain level. That's that's really fine at a certain level. Um, I'm just wondering whether she talk about now or wait till tomorrow. Do you? Do you I'm need happy for you to wait. Yeah, let's see. Um, I mean, I I also for me the bigger picture is. Uh, the effect of the term equanimity in Buddhist communities in relation to climate issues. Yeah, 
Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's okay. the background. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, I don't actually use the term much. Um, because I actually think it, equanimity is a bit of a... It, it doesn't really exist, uh, which I'll explain, I hope. But um, the, the, uh, the other thing is exactly because of that, because it, it very easily becomes a, a shadow in Buddhist, in Buddhist, uh, for, for Buddhists. Um, so that equanimity in relation to something like climate change is um, very easily goes to a kind of indifference, you know, or, or, or to whatever, you know, whatever social injustice, racial injustice could be anything. So it's, it's a really, we have to be really careful. And of course, everyone, te we all teach that, that the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. It doesn't, it's still there as a really dangerous edge. So, so there's one, maybe, maybe say this, there's one level of equanimity, as I said, which is, which is a kind of, important but more superficial level. So when the Buddha talks about equanimity in terms of the eight worldly conditions, have you heard that? There's praise, blame, success, failure, gain, loss, and pleasure, pain. And then we could put this word, this other translation, equipoise. And so a good practitioner at this superficial level of understanding, a good practitioner views those things as kind of indifferent, in the best sense of the word, between, between you know, doesn't mind if it's success or failure, doesn't mind if it's gain or loss, doesn't mind if it's uh, praise or blame. Um, at, at one level. Um, of course, we can refine that a little bit and say, even with relation to climate change, yes, I care, and this is how it should be, equanimity in the context of the Brahma Viharas, equanimity in the context of really caring passionately, you know, really with a lot of metta, with a lot of compassion for what's happening in the world and the suffering that something like climate change will, will um, is already uh, delivering for so many people. Um, there is the compassion, ideally. There is the metta. There should also be it might be there, the engagement as well. And it might be that the ship is sinking, and that's where the equanimity comes in. That that one one isn't going to be one isn't going to be incapacitated in one's efforts, or totally um, incapacitated by grief and disempowered by grief or worry or fear. That's the best sense of equanimity at that level. Does that make sense? Um, but then there's a whole other level of equanimity, which I think maybe I'll speak about tomorrow, and that has. Um, more to do with this other possible etymology, upa iksha in Sanskrit, and the iksha is seeing things equally. Um, and uh, but but that uh, we're getting into equanimity as we get into the third jhana, which we already talked about, and then more in the fourth jhana, and then as we relate to insight. So I think um, I'll, I'll say it very briefly. Okay, if I Let's take this basic level, take this polarity, pleasure and pain, or pleasant and unpleasant. In a way, I've already said this. And if I practice, uh, so the usual reaction to uh, the pleasant is to want it and to try and hold it and to try and grasp it and try and bring it towards me. And the usual reaction to the unpleasant is to try and push it away, right? That push and pull of grasping and aversion to the degree that they are present in the consciousness at any moment is the degree to which equanimity is not present. You could define it that way. Does that make sense? So that as, as I practice in one way or another 
letting go of any in in the moment. This is not a way to live one's life. It's completely not a way to live one's life. It's a practice in the moment of letting go of any pushing away of, of an anything that I notice at any level in the moment. And I and letting go or calming any pulling towards me or hanging on at any level in the moment. If I just practice that and there's a there's lots of different ways of doing that. If I just practice that um, then I notice there's a calming in the being, and that calming is part of what equanimity is and looks like. But it doesn't stop there. If I keep doing it, I will then begin to notice that the very perception, which may be the iksha, the eyes, uh, oh, the seeing of the pleasant and unpleasant begins to change. The very sense of them begins to, to change. And what's pleasant becomes eventually, what's unpleasant becomes less unpleasant. And what's pleasant uh, may, for a little while, get more pleasant, and then it then it becomes more. It goes towards more neutral, till in the end, actually, everything becomes a kind of neither pleasant nor unpleasant vedana. But it doesn't stop there either. It goes even deeper. And if I keep doing this and keep doing this, the actual sensation begins to disappear. So we've gone, you're letting go of really, really, you know, at m more and more deep and subtle levels, the, we're letting go of push-pull, letting go of push-pull, letting go of push-pull. And so it's gone way beyond a state of calmness in response to, or a state of okayness in response to pleasure and pain. It's actually affecting uh, or, f or fabricating the very perceptions of pleasure and pain. Is this making sense? Does it make sense? Vaguely, theoretically, theoretically yeah. It, these are practices, and and I can say this, you know, a thousand times until you have the, uh, until you actually know how to practice this, put it into practice and see it for yourself. Um, and and there's a whole range here, and so eventually what happens is not just pleasure and pain disappear, but the very sensations disappear, and then actually the very world disappears. Self disappears, world disappears, blah, 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 all time disappears. In that state, we're not talking about equanimity in relation to anything that's pleasant or unpleasant, but it's but it's a deep level of equanimity. That's partly why I think equanimity is a, is a, is actually a thing that doesn't exist, because by the time you've got real equanimity, there's nothing to be equanimous about. Um, but anyway, so equanimity is a big subject. It's complex, and it has it's very much in, interwoven with. The territory we'll get onto as we go onto the fourth jhana and the other jhanas and, and how, how it meets with insight. But I, in terms of what you're saying about climate change, and I know y you know what a concern that is for you, and how passionate and dedicated you are, and also living in Australia where there's really not that much consciousness, it seems, about it at the moment. Um, uh, it's it's really really important, you know, that that that. You know, we don't use, and it could be in any spiritual tradition, that we don't use uh, certain teachings to, you know, brush over or hide, uh, uh, you know, our, our, nob our noblest responses, etc. Yeah. Good. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. Um, is that is that Monica at the back? Please, yeah.
thank you, Rob, for mentioning the push and pull, which you also spoke about when you described the third jhana. And when you mentioned in the third jhana, you mentioned something like a peacefulness that arises from um, quietening the push and pull. And I have a question regarding that, because if I remember correctly, when you read the description of the first jhana, it was something in the lines of secluded from the hindrances. So I was under the impression that we were done with the push and pull in the first jhana already, because aversion and greed and aversion weren't present anymore, which, which are the push and pull. So if, if we're already secluded from the hindrances, where is this push and pull coming from? Yeah, yeah. I'm confused. Yeah, thank you. It's really important. So, um, yeah, it depends. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I, I use the word clinging, and, and push and pull is just another word for clinging uh, for me. Um, but I, I use that word in a very elastic way so that um, there are very obvious manifestations of clinging, very obvious manifest like the hindrances, for instance. But that's really just one level. Okay? And as you say, when we let go of the hindrances, a certain amount of clinging, a certain amount of push-pull has, has gone from our experience. But it's enough that then the, the being, the energy body and, and the being feel really good first jhana kind of arises. Um, but as I use that word uh, as having all kinds of uh, a, a range of depths and subtlety that um, it's, I don't know, m maybe in the Dharma world there's a lot of teachings that don't use that word so, so much that it stays like quite a gross, a gross thing. Either there is clinging or there isn't. And then that often goes with teachings that either there is a self, there, the self was there or it's not. But I view all these words, self and clinging and all of that as, as spectra. In, and they go really, really, really subtle. So that by the time we get to the third or fourth jhana, the amount of push and pull is, 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 is way less. You know, So even the um, yeah, so let's say that. But but even there, and I'll repeat this uh, as we get as we get into more territory. It doesn't stop there. It goes the, the there's really really subtle clinging and push pull even in the fourth jhana. Now a lot of I'm I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't agree, but that's how I that's how I use those words. So um, well, d how does that sound for now? Yeah, I understand. So it's really the degree of push and pull, yeah. where in the spectrum we are exactly. in the push and pull, yeah, yeah. that becomes goes more and more subtle yeah. levels. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in a way, you could say, one way of understanding what's happening in the jhanas is that we're just letting go of clinging at, at a deeper level or to more refined, refined things that we hadn't... We didn't, cause how, how do you cling to consciousness? Um, or so we tend to think of clinging, as I said, as or in English, and and in a lot of Dharma, it, it refers to something that's actually quite gross, clinging, craving, and all that. But I really mean them as open-ended terms. Let's just see 
where the limit is. And it's the very, A, the stillness and subtlety of the attention that allows us to um, see where that clinging is more, more subtly. But B, it's also framing the teachings from the beginning in a way that, that doesn't define things uh, in a limited way. So if I define clinging as something gross, then I'm not going to look for any, any subtle, but any, any more subtle clinging. But if I define it in this more open way, right from the beginning, then it's a question of, oh, well, m- maybe there's more. I have to get still and sensitive so I have to get down to a certain level of very little clinging to, to see when there's ev- even less. Does that make sense? Um, so that's the kind of way I like to present things. That whole process is, that whole investigation of letting go of more and more clinging is what I would call an, an insight investigation. So like I said, any insight way of looking, which means any insight practice as I would frame it and teach it, is, is doing just that. In one way or another, that's, exact, that's the primary thing it's doing. It may look like it's doing something very different, but that's primarily what it's doing. And then at certain points, you can kind of, you may just be able to follow the same practice into deeper and deeper, uh, or more and more subtle levels of clinging, more deeper and deeper letting go, or you may need to kind of tweak the practice a little bit so that, so that you can get into subtler and subtler levels of letting go. The way we're practicing jhana at the moment is we're not really thinking so much about letting go of clinging and where's the clinging. But there is a way, and I hope to get to it on this retreat, there is a way of practicing jhana where that's actually how you move from one jhana to another. You identify the clinging and you, and you let go, and you can just keep and let go, and that takes you to another level. But at the moment, that's not really how we're approaching things. Um, we're approaching more through just getting into it, letting it ripen, enjoying it, opening to it. Um, so in a way where... A pr- approaching more just trusting the samadhi intention of enjoying and getting into something and and trusting that will naturally ripen in in this process. So when I mentioned the other day that um, the equanimity of the third jhana arises from from attenuating the push-pull, in a way that's more just a, let's understand kind of technically what's really happening here. For most of us, at the, for most of you at this point, the the methodology to get to the third jhana is actually more through just getting to the second jhana and really get satisfied. Now we could see that satisfaction as because I'm satisfied, I don't need to push pull so much anymore. Um, so it's a it's a deep level of letting go of push pull, but it's not it's not the end of the you know. There's more. It, it gets subtler than that. So that that point was more just a a kind of yeah, wanting to be really precise about understanding things and trying to weave things together in terms of the understanding, less less about the practice. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Um, Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. So, um, th- oh, is there more? Since I have the microphone, can <laughs> I? <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. Because I, I wanted to, I don't know if it's, yeah, if it's really a question or a comment, but it's, I benefit from having the microphone because I already had this in my mind to ask and it's following up from what Nicole Nicole was commenting on desire and and I have been reflecting on this over the years and some some of your talks where you ask what do you really want what do you want and and the other day, what's your deepest desire? 
what what's your calling? And the question that came to my mind was about the fabricated nature of desire. Because as as I reflect on my own desire, it has evolved over time since I first started to practice over the years. Uh, to a large degree influenced by what I've been exposed to and accounts of great enlightened beings and great masters and your own accounts. And you, you said something to that yesterday when you mentioned, when you said something like, it depends what you've been exposed to. I, I don't see it in my, my notes right now, but something in, I'm paraphrasing. So when I ask myself that question, what, what am I desiring? I, I'm, it's not like there is something there that is my desire that I'm trying to discover or get to, but that it is fabricated that I am creating my desire. So, <laughs> so I, I, I don't know if it's so much, a, so much of a question, but is there anything you would um, say to that? I would, and in fact, um, somehow you've brought it up with me before, and so in the last series of talks that I recorded at home, I spent about half an hour answering that, so, but it's there somewhere. I don't ask me which talk it's in, somewhere in 45 hours. of <laughs> you can, You'll find it at some point, I guess. Um, but just to say something quickly now, yeah. So again, and it, it a little bit relates to what Marco was asking yesterday. We could say desire is fabricated, but if our understanding of that, or if we're holding that as a view, ends up disempowering our desire, and say, well, it's all fabricated, so I'll just throw it. You know, that's not a very helpful view. At other times, regarding my desire for this or that as fabricated um, is really skillful um, because it helps me let go of what's probably a desire that's just going to make me just, you know, maybe give me a little sugar hit, but is actually miserable. So are, are some of our desires, are many of our desires, or all of, you know, what desires are fabric? Yeah, gosh, can you get through a day out there without being, you know, assaulted by a million advertisements? Um, and then we move in, whatever culture you move in tells you, as you said, you get exposed to not even stories, it's just like how people walk, or how people talk, or how people, you know, present their emotional range. We're barraged by that you know, all, all through. So just to say, for now, yeah, a that's absolutely true. I would turn the question around and, um, and say, okay, what of all these different desires and these moving desires that I notice in myself, you know, they, they change over time, as they change in what, where I am and, and whatever. Um, two things. When they, this goes back to Nicole's question, when when they move, can I notice what what uh, what was significant in moving them? So, for example, I might have this great desire, and someone 
just or a couple of people just say something and it's a little bit ridiculing and then I find that my desire is gone. It could be a, a million different things. Or I have this desire and um, I'm just relaxing, watching TV and I have a beer or, or whatever it is and then the desire, the desire has gone and, and somehow it wasn't there the next day or, or it isn't there the next day. So one's investigating the conditions that actually, it's a hard thing. If we go back to the, the, what we said with Nicole, it's a hard thing. If desire is a flame, it's a hard thing to, to not get blown out, you know. Um, and then all kinds of other flames are ignited by things that, you know, all you know, advertisements and peer pressure and who knows what, you know, and indoctrination from cultures and subcultures wherein. But that's one thing to actually investigate what what moves it, what blows it out, you know. Um, but the second thing with that, I think, is investigating the sense of a desire. Okay, and I think if you compare your desire for, um, d you know, two different things, and obviously a ridiculous example would be your desire to uh, um, have uh, eat a certain food or whatever versus some something else. You can actually feel when a desire is deeper in you, okay? Um, and there's a qualitative and quantitative difference, but we need to really um, uh, begin sensing into the, the differences there and learning to kind of um, notice, tune into, and take care of the deeper desires, you know. Um, th th but introspectively, there should be, there should be differences that you, that you can tell. Um, but that's a short answer for now, and there is really, a, and I was thinking very much because somehow it had come up between us at some point, and I devoted a chunk of time to it on those recordings. So, um, and the other thing with all this is, you know, some people, some people have patterns. In fact, it's quite common to have patterns that. Uh, so we, you, this is a jhana retreat, not a desire retreat. Anyway, um, uh, um, the. Because I have talked about it a lot, and I think I think it's important, but I, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about it. But um, it's good to know oneself in relation to desire. And what I see is that that's quite rare as well. That a person really knows, I know my patterns with desire. It's not that I know what I want, but I actually know what happens in me with desires. So some people, the flame can't get going. Some people, the flame goes and they can't tolerate it. Some people get confused or distracted by other, you know, ignitions that get thrown from all kinds of other. Some people, the flame bursts up and then somehow they don't really follow through. Or they say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Or I'm, and, and it doesn't really follow through. What's happened? What happened over those months or, or whatever it is that there isn't the, uh, that one isn't a person of one's word? You know, so so it's really good to know oneself in in relation to these things. Uh, I think it's really really important. And I'm I'm, you know, I I really meant it the other day when I said in terms of significance of teachings, this is a much more significant teachings than than anything I might tell you about how to move from one jhana to other. Maybe even than the jhanas themselves. You know, in fact, I would say that it's like. Uh, really understanding ourselves and really becoming mature in relation to desire, and it's it's huge. 
Um, so, but there's a lot of aspects to that, a lot, lot, lot of aspects to it. And I've spoken about it a lot, so uh, on, on recordings and things, so I'm not going to... Is that okay for now? Yeah? Thank you. Okay. Um, I've got a couple of written ones. Should I do that or someone else right now? I've got a couple from you here as well. Let me do someone else's one and we'll come back. So um, I'm exploring sukkah and its different nuances. The buoyant and bubbly and more recently its soft, gentle aspect. I'm enjoying it. I feel absorbed into it. But a question keeps arising for me again and again about the difference between a mental feeling and a physical one. What is a mental feeling or an emotion exactly? Question mark. What isn't a mental feeling or an emotion exactly? Question mark. I thought that all feelings could only actually be felt in the body. I do have a sense of feeling the mental aspect emotion slash emotion, but it's not really clear where in the body I'm feeling it. It just feels all over. So it's harder to probe than with the PT. Yesterday you spoke about tuning into a frequency in the energy body, which I do, but isn't the energy body just imaginary? Maybe I'm just experiencing a hindrance of doubt. If you can distill this somewhat lengthy question and offer any answers, that would be much appreciated. Yeah, this is important. Thank you. So um, there's a few things, a few questions sort of woven in there. So what is a mental feeling or an emotion exactly? Uh, it's a really complex thing, is what it is. Um, and, uh, you know, usually, usually, uh, I would say an, an emotion has several aspects to it. It has, um, it usually has some kind of thought content or a, a, a type of thought content associated with it. Of course, once you get into the jhana, then it's like emotions free of thoughts. Um, it also usually has a kind of texture of the mind. It's like the mind feels it like it has a certain texture to it, agitated or spacious or calm or whatever, but, but even more subtle than that. But it also has a bodily aspect to it. So at least those three aspects, plus probably beliefs and a whole network of other things, are, are part of a, the complexes that we call emotions. This business about, oh, Sukha is an emotional thing, and PT. Um, two things about that. One is it's an it's a thing from Abhidhamma, so I don't necessarily subscribe to that. Um, I'm not, you know, Abhidhamma is Buddhist Buddhist psychology, and it tends to have a certain way of framing things that, you know, sometimes it's useful, and I find, and sometimes really not useful. So it's classified that when sukha or something like that, it's a, this is a mental feeling, this is a this, this is a that. They like putting things in categories, and it's all very sort of black and white and very simple sounding, but there's lots and lots of categories of different things. So an emotion to me is actually a complex thing. When we get down to jhanic emotion, like let's say the sukha, um, in a way you're talking about a simpler thing, but I would still say it has it's felt two ways. It's felt in the body. And again, in jhanic terms, that's the primary thing. Because every time the Buddha says, with the first four jhanas, the practitioner pervades and permeates, suffuses and saturates, drenches and steeps, and etc., their whole body with that quality. So most, most people... I think who haven't practiced meditation or energy body awareness would just be a bit baffled by that. What does it mean? 
um, to have, uh, let's say, uh, uh, happiness in one's whole body. I mean, some people might get it, but generally it's, and then to focus on that. But this is really the primary thing in jhana practice. It's the energetic vibration, the energy body vibration, so to speak, or frequency, which is an aspect of an emotion. Now there's a mental one as well. Where is that mental one? Well, it's in the mind, but where's the mind? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. What matters f in terms of uh, practice is, is the primary thing is body, 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 energy, body, energy, body, energy, body. Um, where it is in the body, yeah, once it's spread, uh, let, me, let me backtrack and say one more thing about this PT and Sukhavis. I've said it already. So at first, when people are opening to all this, I will say something like, Piti is a physical feeling, and then sukha is an emotional one. That's a, it's, a, it's a white lie, okay? It's just something that helps people differentiate those two at first. But after a while, you'll be like, well, well, actually, they're both kind of physical. They're just different vibrations physically, or different ranges of vibrations physically. Um, so it was just a little piggyback idea, but basically, they're, it, they're uh, vibrations in the body. And then, then the second sort of piece of question here, um, I do have a sense of feeling the, the mental aspect or emotion, but it's not really clear where in the body I'm feeling it, it just feels all over. So that's perfect, you know, that's what we want. Permeates and pervades the whole body, that's exactly what we want, I feel it all over, even homogeneously all over. So it's harder to probe than with the PT. Um, not necessarily, so sometimes they, when, when the PT or the sukha, when it feels stronger in some place. So you've got three scenarios. You've got a scenario that hasn't spread yet and it won't spread this session. And then, okay, that's where I do my probing, obviously. I stopped trying to spread it, but that's where I do my probing. You've got a second scenario where it's spread, but it's not 100% homogenous. And then I take the strongest area and that's where I do my probing. That make sense? And uh, the third scenario is it's completely spread and it's completely homogenous. And then I just choose a random place. It doesn't matter if it's homogenous and I just go into it at one point. It's like a person diving into a swimming pool. They're diving in at one point, but once they once they dive in, and or a lake, once they dive in, then they that very diving, that very penetrating, might make them feel like they're in a different uh, terrain. It might take them to another level at that process yeah so you don't have to it doesn't you can just choose any place and do that yeah um, yesterday you spoke about tuning into a frequency in the energy body which I do but isn't the energy body just imaginary um, well <sighs> the energy body is n no more imaginary than anything else is imaginary um, so again it's one of those things it's like Sometimes it's really helpful for me, I, I feel, or for I sense for a particular person at a particular time to take the energy body as a real thing. And of course, there's loads of schools of yoga and healing and all kinds of things, that shaman, shamanistic healing that take the energy body as a real thing. Um, that's fine. I, I'm a little, mm, talk about subtle body or energy body and it's reified. Um, it's fine, but I really think that has limits. Um, the thing about the energy body, or one of the things about the energy body that's really important to understand is that it's very amenable to our imagination. So that's not 
quite the same thing as saying it's totally imaginary. Because when we say something's imaginary, we tend to then poo-poo it relative to something else. That's why I say it's Im as imaginary as anything else, maybe. Um, but the energy body as we're playing with it is, is very sensitive and susceptive and uh, responsive to our imagination. So that if I imagine the energy moving in a certain way from my energy body, lo and behold, that's what I will experience in the energy body if, if I keep doing that. Make sense? Um, so, and then with other people, you know, or a same person at a different time, it's like, okay, enough now with this, with this kind of reifying of the energy body. You know, you've been doing that for years. And, and again, the whole, it's a bit like uh, what Jason was asking, yes, about, uh, or someone else, about locks and unblocking things. And one can get kind of obsessed about this and as if the whole of practice is sort of getting my energy body to feel a certain way. So f for them, for those people, I might say, you know, it's not a real thing. Actually, what's more, more deeply real or more usefully seen as, as real is just the idea that we're playing with perception. So, so I don't think it's doubt so much as some clar clarity was needed there. Does that sound okay? I can't see back there. Can you just, yes? Okay, good. Thank you. Um, okay, very good. Uh, let's see. Um, I think these are useful anyway, so I'm going for other people. So I'm going to um, which jhana does that second bright light nimitta appear in? So the, the bright light is quite common for some people, um, can appear in any jhana or even before a jhana. It's just, it's what I call a secondary nimitta. It's just an indication that the samadhi is going well. Um, so some people get it, it's very associated with the first jhana. Some people, it only comes in the fourth jhana. Some people, it never comes. Some, you know, some people, it's just there access concentration or whatever. So it's not particular to a jhana, it's just a, it's a secondary nimitta. In, in other words, it's not, uh, it's not of primary importance unless we really mix it with the primary nimitta and get, and get into it that way. Um, and second question, did you say that jhanas one to four had equanimity in them? Um, no, I didn't say that, but uh, the Buddha said jhanas three and four had equanimity in them. But I was saying, well, hold on, that's a little misleading. So we really need to unpack, A, what's primary in jhanas three and four. It's the peacefulness, and I'll explain that jhana four tomorrow. And unpack this whole idea of equanimity, because as we've been talking about a little bit today, it's, it's actually quite a complex idea, and we need to kind of go a little more carefully. From another point of view, and relating to Monica's question, yeah, you could say each jhana has some degree of equanimity to it, because equanimity... Most things are not on-off switches. Either you have equanimity or you don't. You have some degree of equanimity. So the first jhana, even when it's, you know, you have to peel me off the ceiling because it's just e ecstasy like that, it's actually got some degree of equanimity in it in relation to other things, you know. Um, so a lot of these things, a lot of, a lot of Dharma concepts are really not on-off, black or white. They're really spectra and... And if we, if we think of them as on-off, we're actually a bit like what I said about clinging or self. So a lot of people report, um, I was meditating and then there was no self. Or da -da -da, and it's like, 
No, think about it more as a spectrum, because what, y what you're calling no self at the moment is actually just a much less fabricated sense of self. It's just lower down on the spectrum. And if I have that idea of spectrum, repeating what I said before, in relation to equanimity, in relation to self, in relation to clinging, all these other words, then actually that's going to make me, it's going to enable me to notice way more than I would have noticed if I was just had a view of either there is self or there isn't self in a moment. Either self is being fabricated or it isn't. Either there's equanimity or there isn't. So this idea of a spectrum, which just goes subtler and subtler, and it's part of the, the beauty and the art to, to trace it um, and understand it, that's really, really important. Okay, yeah. so something else. <laughs> Oh, I thought you had another question. Um, is she allowed another one? Should we vote? <laughs> yeah, go, go for it, go for it. This question is about um, like territories, territory and responsiveness. Um, and I've been, I think a lot of this retreat, I've been trying to figure out how to stay in one territory. And um, I'm working in the third, in the third jhana space. And I'm just, I'm wondering about um, when you talked about uh, contentment being one of the things, one of the levels. I've been following... I've noticed that um, there are edges that I drop out into another space, and one of them is with the contentment. And I'm, I'm just trying, I'm really like trying to figure out the edge of where that is, um, and it, and I of like how far down to go in my experience of what's coming up in in terms of contentment there. And um, I notice like in the middle range, there's like a, there's a very kind of like a, like a, that kind of very the way you very much describe the atmosphere of that space of the third genre like with contentment and then when I go lower so so there was a kind of sense of like perfect contentment like that's the kind of like kind of quite light feeling of it but then I notice I can go really very very low with the contentment and still have a still have the qualities of like um uh, like the sukkah and peacefulness, but like the contentment is quite a lot bigger, and I'm and it's it's more a kind of like deep well of rich contentment feeling, rather than like perfect contentment kind of feeling. And I'm just won wondering how is that still within the range? So when you go deeper, the contentment is not perfect. Is that what you're saying? No, it, it gets more kind of rather than quite light and gentle. Like, you know, not quite uplifting, but more like light and gentle. It becomes more rich and deeper in, in my experience. But it still feels like perfect contentment. Yeah, yeah. It's really, yeah well, it's that's really fine. Um, yeah, the contentment thing's only a... It's not, it's not the primary thing. It's just kind of me pointing out a bandwidth that if you really want to get into all this stuff and develop the kind of sensitivity to all these different uh, levels, then it's a good thing to know and it's a good thing to hang out with. Might it take different kind of flavors and colors at different times? Yeah, but the primary thing is the contentment, and it really feels like it's, um, y you know, 
really, really satisfying. I mean, extremely satisfying. Then you're still in the contentment. Yeah. So does that? Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, I want to just say a couple more little things. Um, again, just the the real encouragement to to marinate. Yeah. So. so uh, Especially if, if if different things are opening, it can be very tempting to want to just slide around everywhere and check out, oh, what's this, what's that? Um, but as we've been emphasizing right from the beginning, the 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 fruits of this particular you know set of practice, what we call jhana practice, will come from marinating, which means many many times over and over, just putting yourself, submerging yourself, and and holding, sustaining something for as long as you can, you know hour, two hours, longer, three, whatever, four, just sit in something over and over and over. Um, that's going to be doing something to mind, heart, and body that w- just won't get the chance to happen if if we're sliding around too much. Um, so if you've done a lot of soul-making and imaginal practice, you know, Oftentimes, one doesn't actually. One of the amazing things about soul making practice is just a couple of minutes sometimes with an image can be incredibly potent. Um, it's also true that a couple of minutes with a jhana can be incredibly potent, but it's much more the case that if we really marinate for much longer in a jhana, it's going to do something uh, that it won't do in just a couple of minutes. So it's actually quite rare for a soul-making practitioner or an imaginal practitioner to really just spend hours and hours and hours revisiting the same same image and just really, really being with that. That's, uh, at least I haven't kind of put that out as an offering. I haven't heard anyone really do that. It's not really what we're doing so much with um, imaginal practices. And there's a difference here, you know. I'm just going to say this very briefly because I know some of you don't know this territory at all about soul-making dharma, so i just say this very briefly for those of you who do. Um, in case you are a soul-maker and you find yourself actually taking the same kind of rhythms into jhana practice, which is just moving quite quickly and all these lovely, amazing things opening up, when we're with an image, when we're with an erotic imaginal image, when there's eros for an image, I don't mean by that sexual eros necessarily, it could mean that, but more than that, we're doing something different. We're resonating and being with it, but we want to maintain the two-ness. Remember this from soul-making teachings? Why? Because eros needs two-ness. Eros needs the polarity, and the imaginal needs the eros. Without the eros, the imaginal folds, and without the two-ness, the eros folds, and therefore the imaginal folds. In jhana practice, Actually, what we're doing is, as much as we can, that's the A of sassy, can I dissolve into this? Can I kind of dissolve my body into the peacefulness or whatever it is? Or, or, uh, so it's almost like in, in, in imaginal practice, the duality is maintained. And it m- self doesn't dissolve into its object. There's not that in even intention or dire- uh, direction. We maintain this polarity, this erotic tension between self and imaginal object. Lovely as that is, but we're not letting it collapse into oneness. In, in jhana practice, the movement is actually to let it dissolve. In imaginal practice, 
the self also might start to become imaginal. Here's this wonderful imaginal object and the self also starts to become imaginal. In jhana practice, the self should become less and less of a sense of self. Back to the spectrum of self, it's actually less and less of a self. It's more and more dissolved. So these are really, really important differences. Um, The movement is towards less, we could say, less polarity, less duality in jhana practice. Whereas in imaginal practice, you're actually sustained, not always, but for the most part, you want to sustain some sense of duality and polarity. Sometimes you can let yourself uh, go there, uh, dissolve that way a little bit, merge, union and all that. But if you, if you do too much of that, it will just dissolve, dissolve the whole thing. Do we ever reach a state of no complete non-duality in jhana practice? No. Uh, no matter what it might feel like, uh, etc. Again, here's one of those spectrum it's a spectrum of less and less separation um, not necessarily as you go more and more through e- you know from one to eight but your experience of say jhana number four at different times might be more or less um, you know separate dualistic etc it never becomes in my because duality is also a word that I consider a spectrum so it's very easy that was a completely non-dualistic experience and self was gone and blah, blah, it's probably not. In fact, it's definitely not. If there's a jhana, in, in my way of understanding this, there's still some duality, but still, because of the A is an open-ended in sassy, the movement is towards less duality. Does this make sense for, for the soul maker? So there's a difference there. So just check if you're skidding around too much and, um, that, oh, that's a, that's a different modality, that's a different rhythm. and. And in the jhana, it's really towards dissolving, dissolving, towards dissolving. You will never completely dissolve. You will never, however absorbed you are, however great the A is of sassy, there, there can be more. Yeah. So just to, to delineate between those two. Yeah. Um, actually, okay. okay. Um, just give me a second here because I need to say a couple of things. Uh, okay. Yeah. Let's try. Just that uh, I do have, I feel like I have a strong erotic relationship to the jhanas, and I've had, like, since pity began to arise. So the way I experience absorption in the jhana is kind of, yeah, it's a temporary absorption, but I also have, like, this long-term relationship with the jhana, which is soulful and erotic in the sense, and it's very central in my experience of them. So would you think it's... Yeah, so I, I mentioned this very briefly one time. There's so much information, but I'll I say it again. So if I understand what you're saying, Karen. So when in, I don't want to talk, again, it's not a soul-making retreat, but just very briefly. Um, so in soul-making down, we talk about eros. And uh, there is this, we define eros as this um, wanting or movement towards more intimacy, more closeness, more touching, more penetration, more opening, etc with whatever it is and and that could be a jhana it could be a Im, Im, imaginal person or whatever but that definition is if you like the the seed definition the larger definition of eros means that it is okay it does that there's that movement but in doing that it uh, ignites and stimulates the whole soul-making dynamic which involves psyche and logos as well and when psyche and logos get expanded the object becomes bigger and richer and more multifaceted and more complex has more beyonds 
so that, uh, and, and then the self becomes image as well. So outside of meditation, outside of jhana meditation, one might have, and ideally t- to get the engines really going and the whole relationship with it, one does have an erotic relationship. There is eros in relation to the jhanas in the bigger sense, in the wider sense. There's a whole image, there's a self-image, me on the path, me in the history, me in the teacher, me in the jhanas, that territory, their mystical sense. Um, but that's outside of meditation. In the meditation, it's, uh, it's eros in the smaller sense that we're we're just we're not letting it go to psyche and logos because that's uh, it's it's a kind of proliferation and we want it s- you know simple it's this thing and i'm just dissolving into it we don't let the self become image we don't let the thing become more complex in a way we we actually want it, want to get more into it like that so it's a different uh there's eros but it's a sm- it's the small version the seed definition that makes sense okay we can talk about it another time but that's um that's, I think, qu- yeah, quite an important distinction. There's just a couple of other things, if it's okay, because then we, we need to end. Um, yes, again, a context thing. So right now we've been talking about soul-making practice, and then we were talking about desire, and we were talking about equanimity, and yesterday or whenever we were talking about emotions. And um, and then sometimes you often hear, maybe less so these days, but you often hear something like, oh, Jhanas are dangerous because um, you know what you're what you're doing then is suppressing some emotion. You could be bypassing, you could be engaging in spiritual bypassing, or just suppressing emotions that are traumas that are really important, etc. Um, I think probably as you do more and more uh, jhana practice, you'll realize more and more a- actually that there isn't really suppression going on, or the whole idea of it, it will, it will become obvious that this is, at least the way we're practicing it, this is not, this is not what's happening here. Um, but it, the wider point I wanted to make was, there's no, there's no single practice that's a complete and perfect practice. So we really have to have this sense of a larger context. Um, when we're doing jhana practice, yeah, we do have a certain leaning or preference in relation to, as I said right on the opening talk, how I'm going to relate to difficult emotions when they arise. But then I have a second order, uh, a second pre- tier preference, and a third, and a, and a fourth, you know. But there's a certain leaning that way. When we do other practices, we'll reverse that order, or whatever. Um, is there a danger of spiritual bypassing? Yeah, there is a danger of spiritual bypassing. Um, does everyone know that word? Like avoiding some issue by, uh, well, by avoiding it by hanging out in a nice space in this case. Um, but we can spiritual bypass through any practice, uh, in, in fact. And um, there are other dangers. So what I'm trying to say is no single practice avoids all the dangers or, or is without pitfalls. So If I just relate to, if I never relate to emotions in in the way that we're exploring uh, on this retreat, for instance, this thing, might it be a hindrance at its root? And what happens if I don't give my attention there and I just let the mind um, really develop its loveliness? And sometimes let it develop its loveliness and then put, put, 
I'm not even suggesting you do this, sometimes it arises, a difficult memory comes up within that loveliness. Or, or sometimes, very occasionally, you can put that difficult memory in the loveliness and see what happens. And sometimes, uh, it's very clear, I'm not suppressing anything, I'm actually putting it there, or it's coming up. There's no sense of I'm blocking it or inhibiting my emotional responses, and see what happens. There's something we can learn about emotions through jhana practice that it's actually much, much more difficult to learn through other modalities, um, other modes of practice. So the danger of, of not doing jhana practice is that we don't learn those, those particular things about emotions. Are they the complete and final truth about emotions? No, they're not. They're just one, one perspective, one aspect. But to have, again, this range of both understanding and possibility and the freedom and the skill with emotions, that's really, really precious. So we don't, we're just in a certain context here. And of course, I could be in psychotherapy or working in some other with my emotions, and then at some point someone points out, oh, might you be, um, is there a word for it, uh, sociopolitically, ecologically bypassing? Um, or a little bit akin to what Victor said, there's every possibility of that as well. And there have been critiques of you know, all kinds of spiritual practices and psychological practices that Oh, I'm getting so into this thing and believing in the reality of this uh, that I've I've neglected this. So we're all there's no one practice that's going to do that's going to take care of everything. So it really is important. What's the bigger picture? What's the context? How am I seeing this in a bigger mandala of collections of practices that will do their best to kind of uh, cover the whole terrain of what it is to be a human being and see things from different angles and perspectives and work with things in different ways. That's really, really important. Yeah. Uh, that was one thing. And then just finally, before we end, um, usually, how, how, how long have we been here? I know it probably feels like decades for some people, but h how long? It's like... Two... What's it? Thirteen days. Okay, is that scratched on some people's? <laughs> 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 um, um, so usually, uh, probably about the third evening, or maybe the fourth evening of a week retreat, insight retreat, I, I would probably say something. As as I ring the bell for the final sitting, I'd probably say something like, "So check in how you're feeling right now." Um, you know. It's the end of the daily schedule, but maybe there's actually energy there and you're just going to bed out of habit. Or maybe you feel uh, a bit tired, but actually, um, it's actually, if I look into it, it's actually a version that's making me tired. And maybe I want to sit up and, and, and explore that a little bit. But there would be the encouragement to just see what's possible in terms of extending uh, the effort on a macro level. Um, so it's 13 days now, apparently, and and saying it now, but um, you don't know where you are with it. You're probably all in a different place, but now I'll, I'll say it to everyone. I the, inv the Again, it's one of those things that I should have said at the beginning. I kind of thought that it was obvious, just the way the schedule looked. Um, but in a way, the schedule does not end at 9.30. Um, it's just that there's a group sitting that we like everyone to be here for between 9 and 9.30, but, but the hall is open. 
Um, and especially as retreats get longer, people get all kinds of different rhythms and, and a lot more energy available. Sometimes one just uh, gets up or goes to bed at the same time out of, just check, how much is it habit? Sometimes it's fear. I'm afraid that I'll be tired tomorrow or whatever it is. Um, and sometimes it's, a, again, aversion. This, this um, you know, tiredness can come from aversion. It's not actually that I need sleep. It's actually that I just, I'm just pushing things away very subtly and the mind closes in and that makes me just want to go to bed. And going to bed is a kind of, let's push things away. Um, and similarly, the, y- you know, the, the day doesn't begin at 6.45, the meditative day. I mean, it can, if that's, y- if that's your rhythm, you know, if that feels, that's, but again, this, this invitation to listen in and feel what feels possible and what feels um, right and what, what you're actually, what your energy capacities are. And if you're not sure, let's play with it a little bit. So it's not, you know, some retreats you might hear, it's kind of gone out of fashion, but some retreats it's like, less sleep, less sleep, less sleep, less sleep, you know, as the days goes on. I don't think that's wise, but there is something about listening and finding out, and if I don't know, experimenting, you know, really experimenting. Um, lunchtime, breakfast time, depends when your wor- work period is, but basically it's all, o- all the places are open to practice. Um, during the morning work period, in the lunch, uh, after lunch, etc. Um, we've been talking a lot about effort levels, and there's the micro level, you know, this kind of, okay, can I really just, just lean back a little bit, metaphorically, perhaps into more of the receiving, moment to moment, can I make the attention a bit more intense right now, and this that's really important. But there's also the macro level, which we mentioned as well, um, and that has to do with yeah, the rhythm of the day, and so the day can very much breathe, but but you also want to be listening. We want to be listening and responsive and stretching things and experimenting. And sometimes we feel like, okay, I know I'm an overstriver, and therefore I should, you know, uh, not stay up late or not get up early or, or whatever it is, or not sit so much. But and then on this retreat, we've been putting a lot of emphasis on how important the opening of the heart is and nourishing of the heart. But opening the heart is not mutually incompatible with spending more time in formal meditation or extending or playing with one's effort. They're not like, if you do one, the other isn't happening. Um, so the time the time is precious i mean i did say don't I, and i really mean it don't put too much pressure on these 3 weeks but at the same time mm, hopefully you have a sense of this the time is precious we're already 13 days and uh time time flies and things change and opportunities um you know some opportunities won't come again um so it's more about Rather than should, it's more about, you know, again, questions of sensitivity, attunement, responsiveness, experimentation. With the whole, how much am I sitting? How much am I playing my edges? What is my habitual kind of uh, habit patterns? Or what creeps in around things like how much to practice formally, when to go to bed, when to get up, etc. How much is habit? How much is... Um, a little bit of fear, how much is even a little bit of aversion. But rather than any should or any formula, everyone should sleep X hours or anything like that, it's really this invitation to 
um, extend the sensitivity, attunement, uh, uh, res responsiveness, and experimentation. Extend it to that domain as well. And play, play, uh, and see without any sense of should. But we have to experiment to find certain things out and see what's possible. So, I wanted to say that. Yeah. Okay, very good. Let's have a bit of quiet together. everybody and, um, time for tea Anything else to no okay so time for tea <coughs> thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate